Welcome to episode 19 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. We have a different episode today. For the first week in uh, 19 episodes, one of the four core members of the podcast is on vacation and we couldn't schedule around it. So we have a guest today, Mike McElwee, uh, who's a close teammate and friend of Brian Owen and mine, and also John's, who's obviously absent this week. John is on a uh, awesome trip that I'm sure he'll tell us a little bit about when he returns. But we have the sa- same show format, just a new edition with, uh, I'm sure, all types of unique insights that uh, Mike will be sharing today. So, Mike, welcome to the pod. We're glad to have you as a guest today. Thank you. Welcome to be here. Awesome. Okay, Owen, I know that you wanted to start off with uh, a new story about a company kind of going about this hybrid work a little bit differently than how most are. Let's jump in. Yeah, so uh, for those that read the Wall Street Journal, there was an article last weekend about Smucker's Jam. Um, We all know Smucker's. It's a brand that's been around for over 100 years. And they're headquartered in Oroville, Ohio, which for those that don't know where that is, that's northeastern Ohio. Um, Not exactly a sprawling metropolis, a town of only 9,000 people. And they were in the Wall Street Journal because they're taking a different approach to the whole hybrid work um, plan that most companies in America are still trying to figure out. And their policy is not come in to the office two days a week, three days a week, um, but rather uh, they're having what they call core weeks. And so what they've implemented company-wide for their 1,300 employees is that you are required to be on campus or be in their corporate headquarters 22 weeks a year out of the 52 weeks. So in other words, assume give or take two weeks vacation, maybe more for others that have earned it. But you're basically working 22 weeks supposedly in the office and then call it 28, 30 weeks um, you're working anywhere. And they see this, at least from their perspective, as an, as an asset to hiring the best talent because granted, as you can imagine, Northeastern Ohio, for some, isn't exactly where they want to live. Um, and this policy allows people to live anywhere in the United States so long as they're returning to campus for those 22 core weeks. Um, the idea is that you're working remotely, doing a great job for your team, um, but they schedule you know, intensive meetings, kick off big projects, do peer reviews, et cetera, during those core weeks. Um, and so far, at least according to Smuckers, it's working and they're pleased with the results. And I just wanted to bring this up because it's not something that has been widely reported um, that has been implemented anywhere else. I mean, I see speaking to my clients, those that aren't back full time, four or five days a week are you know adhering to a two to four day a week um, schedule. This was the first time I'd seen a major corporation um, reverse that trend and say, no, but we are going to come in perceivably five days a week, 22 weeks of the year. Now, as um, Brian will talk about my, obviously our teammate here, um, it's not always five days a week. Um, and I'll let him kind of share some of the comments that was uh, came from the article from one of the employees that was quoted. Um, but interesting thought. I don't have an answer as to whether it's working or not. I think time will tell, just like hybrid work. But um, that's what I wanted to bring up. I thought it was interesting. Uh, oh, and it is very interesting. I have a, you, I think, just to take a step back, a unique perspective on this. So I, for many years, had um, worked, uh, had the privilege of working for a company called Corning Incorporated. And they're headquartered in Corning, New York, which is in the southern tier 
of New York on the Pennsylvania border. And for two stints in 2004 and in 2006, I actually lived in, uh, in Corning. And I lived there for a number of months. I traveled back to Boston uh, infrequently because it's difficult to get here. So I got, I got a chance to, to, to really fall in love with that small town kind of company culture. Um, and I would tell you that a lot of the policies on return to work because of these remote locations to get the best talent, they had a very uh, liberal policy around being in the office anyway. They had their own their own uh, airline flying people in from at their height from Boston, from Newark, uh, from from Wilmington, uh, North Carolina and a couple other spots. But they had kind of these hubs where they had people and plants and they would fly around and they'd all connect back to their headquarters. And it was a very liberal policy anyway. The, to get talent, you need to get people from other locations. <clears throat> some would relocate, some would travel there. And it would be, um, you know, there'd be, there'd be a lot of um, concessions made to get those people, uh, particularly with smuckers. And this is why I, I read the article and I just didn't, I thought it was not as impressive as the journal made it out to be because the particular person they were interviewing left her, uh, her home on Monday evening. She would work in the office on Tuesday and Wednesday, and she would pack up her things and she would leave on Thursday afternoon. So effectively her core week was two and a half days in the office with travel, right? So, and then she'd be home for the rest of that week, probably working from home on Friday and then working from home the following week and Monday morning or whatnot, and then do the whole thing over again. To me, that with that length of time in the office, to me, just creates significant inefficiencies in the model rather than it being a core week. Yeah, and, and it begs the question, um, and I don't have the answer, but maybe Smuckers does, is having her in the office, or anyone for that matter, uh, in the office two days a week worth um, the exchange, which is that two days um, a week, she's basically not working because, um, you know, granted you can work on a plane, um, but traveling is just difficult and I don't care how efficient and, you know, what kind of technology and devices you have, nobody can work as efficiently as they can as at a desk when they're just on a plane, Ubers, taxis, you name it. So yeah, she's getting there two days a week, but she's blowing up two days a week, um, through travel. So it's really a three day work week. Um, and that's a great point. I don't know how they feel about that. And maybe they would have a good answer. Yeah. And I, I think it's unique in the sense that because their location is so challenging, they have to come up with uh, innovative ways to do it. And I think them getting people back to Orville, Ohio at all to get really good talent to come there at all is probably a win to a certain extent, they were challenged with that beforehand. So I, I just don't know if this is going to be something that we can use as kind of a microcosm of, of the whole industry or, or extrapolate it into a larger data set. I think it's, it's unique. It's cool. The company's doing really well. They've bought a number of other brands. Um, so it's, it's cool, but I don't know if it really tells us a lot about where, we're, you know, where the industry might be going. So look, a ton of respect to Smuckers for trying something new. As far as I know, I don't think many people have tried this. Uh, I think we've already discussed that their new program definitely has some challenges. The biggest issue that I think this program has is that it's designed to try and attract a wider audience of people that can potentially work at Smuckers. 
to, you know, quote unquote, find the top talent on a national basis. I'm sorry, but top talent does not want to spend 22 weeks of the year on planes. Like that is just not what people want to do at all. Um, if you read all of the studies around commute sensitivity for employees, the threshold where it starts becoming painful, where people are will, usually willing to leave their job if there's, you know, inconveniences or other friction that exists, the, the magic number is usually right around 30 to 35 minutes. So if you start using that as the threshold, let's just use 30 minutes for ease of math and say that you're working in an office five days a week, um, 250 days a year. That's 125 hours that you're going to spend just commuting to the office and then another 125 hours commuting home, right? So you're talking about 250 hours. And you think about the amount of travel time that's required to go to the airport, hop on a plane, sit on the plane, land, collect your luggage, go to the office or go to your hotel and then commute probably a shorter distance, maybe 10 minutes or 15 minutes a day, that math ends up being the same, right? If you assume it's, you know, 10 hours of travel to get there and back, you know, in total, that'd be 220 hours versus the 250 of going into office five days a week. Yet, you don't have to hop on a plane and pay for these expensive tickets. I could see there being perhaps more of an argument if you're in a very high cost of living city like Los Angeles, and then somebody says, wait a minute, I can live in Las Vegas or Phoenix or somewhere else that's less expensive. And there's some sort of cost of living arbitrage of, hey, I'm getting paid a Los Angeles or New York salary, but I live in this much you know, less expensive area and my total commuting hours are about the same. But for people that have families, I mean, come on, are you really going to leave your you know, significant other and your you know, kids if you have them for almost half the year where you're just not home during the week? I personally don't buy it. I don't think it's going to work. And I'm very curious to see if they amend this policy in the future. So to jump in the, the next um, topic, and it's not a particular story, but um, I'll take, uh, take you through it. I was with a, a friend and a client recently, and I can't name uh, the company, but the, the topic is really around the CHIPS Act and the onshoring of manufacturing around uh, the semiconductor industry. And they were telling me that they had really looked hard at bringing back production here and and bringing online a number of manufacturing facilities. So even with the amount of money that is being provided to the industry, the cost of production in um, in Seoul, Korea, and in Eastern Europe is significantly less. So they're you know they're ramping up. Um, plans to build manufacturing facilities in both locations that that will support a global supply chain for some of the components that are built here that are in existing facilities. But more importantly, all of the growth is going to be happening still outside of the United States. The, the challenge they found is the incentive. So the governments of these countries that they're particular, I won't tell you which countries they're going into, but they're funding the projects at a much higher percentage than the CHIPS Act could ever touch. So in terms of the land costs, in terms of the cost of building the building, in terms of the cost, the, the, the reduction in costs of, of selling the product, uh, labor incentives, all the whole package is worth, you know, they said could be somewhere near 10x what we're getting here on a one-to-one basis. So I, my question is, and the story is that for discussion is, is this really, is it really 
going to benefit us as a country, benefit us as an industry, when they pick the semiconductor industry specifically to try to get them to onshore, when we can't even be competitive in this case, um, you know, for someone who wants to put production here but can't? Look, I, I think that at a minimum, it's helping, right? In the absence of any incentives, then that gap is obviously much wider. But I guess, Brian, I'd flip it back to you and say, if there is no amount of economic incentive that the government can realistically provide to create onshoring for this, you know, strategically important from a defense and, you know, long-term superiority of the, you know, U.S., if we can't do it economically, do you think that we'll end up seeing um, some sort of more restrictive law? Like, for example, X percent of NVIDIA's semiconductor manufacturing needs to occur in the U.S. or, you know, there's some tax that's applied. I mean, if we're trying to create this, you know, strategic initiative for the country to have more onshore semiconductor capability and the economic incentives aren't getting it done, and this is super important to the U.S. government, do you think that they resort to something, uh, you know, perhaps more draconian versus, you know, the stick versus the carrot? So my, uh, it's a great question, and it almost feels like, and this is part of the topic, it almost feels like they're doing it anyway, right? So we're hearing about these major companies, Taiwan Semiconductor, Intel. Mike, you and I were talking about another one in Texas this morning that you could speak to, but these these large, just massive, it's Micron up in Syracuse, New York, building a, a factory that could that could employ tens of thousands of people if they actually complete all the phases um, for these new high end GPU chips. Right, those are the AI chips. Those are the the ones that are uh, deemed important to national security that we're trying to keep out of certain countries. And it seems like they've kind of self selected already the the important projects, and you hear about them going forward. But that leaves the entire industry looking at it going, at least from my perspective, they're on the outside looking in and nothing. And what has really changed for them? It's an interesting perspective. Um, I can't speak to the semiconductor industry specifically, but I do know, for example, down here in Texas, in our industrial sector, in North Texas, uh, Texas Instruments is in the process of building out close to a 5 billion square foot footprint that will create probably three to 4,000 jobs, and they're spending, I think the budget's $30 billion, right, uh, for a chip, man- uh, chip manufacturing here in the South. Uh, additionally, there's a company, I think it's out of Taiwan, called Global Wafer that's right across the street in the same community of Sherman, Texas, doing the same thing to a smaller magnitude. Um, but at the state, county, and local levels, you know, for example, Texas Instruments, I think they secured probably close to a $30 million incentive package. So to the extent possible, I think with the funds and programs that are available, um, local government is trying to throw money at it to secure those projects. Um, Obviously, here in the South, you have substantially lower real estate costs. Land is cheaper. Land is expansive, right? Uh, we have a lot of it available. And um, it'll be interesting interesting to see all the additional supplier um, vendor partner companies that come in the wake with it. And this has been be- starting to become highly politicized, too, because Taiwan, for listeners that don't know, produces 60% of the semiconductor chips uh, in worldwide. Um, we all know about the tension between China uh, and Taiwan and, 
and their perceived desire to take over Taiwan, uh, even though Taiwan declared, you know, sovereignty you know, back in, I think it was 1949. So um, we, I think we don't want to be dependent on a country that could essentially become um, controlled by China. Uh, and so there's, I've been listening to some of the um, discourse in the, in the papers and on TV, and this is, I'm starting to hear more and more about this because there is that push to become independent um, from the rest of the world and have our own supply, but we're, we're far from that right now. So um, I imagine it will continue. And I, I think this is going to be a growing uh, industry, especially if, if those um, in power, whoever they might be, come next November, make this a priority. You know, this topic to me is reminiscent of what happened starting back in the 90s in the auto industry, uh, foreign cars versus the U.S. cars and that battle, right? Look at all the manufacturers now between Hyundai, Mazda, Mercedes, um, Toyota. You know, Toyota has their U.S. headquarters here in Texas. Uh, the landscape has changed, and I think it's here long term, especially with the advent of EV, right? Uh, Alabama, in some respects, has been coined the new Detroit because a lot of the manufacturers are investing in new plants uh, because of the fact that you really can't retool an existing plant um, from gasoline engines to, to becoming electric. So going back to what Brian said about the CHIPS Act and its efficacy, how much are these incentives really causing people to locate in the U.S. versus going to you know South Korea where costs are way lower? I'm curious what you all think on this. One thing that I've observed, all of us working with different clients have different relationships with different clients. There's some where, uh, I know from speaking from my own experience, I'm sure you all agree, where you're way more hands-on, way more involved in the uh, site selection at a high level of where should we locate this facility? It could be in the U.S., it could be overseas. Which state should it be? What city should it be? What incentives are available? And then there's others where we get involved at a later stage and somebody says, nope, this is the market we need to be in. Here's the specs of what we need. What I've observed in the scenario where, uh, really in either scenario, is that a lot of times companies don't actually follow a hyper-efficient pathway to where they should locate their plant. Of course, there's some super analytical companies that are making these decisions with a, a lot of data and near perfectly of, hey, this is what the data says, this is what we're going to do. But I'd estimate that at least half, probably more like 60 or 70% of companies, somebody is like, well, maybe we should look in this city. Well, what about this city? And they look at a dozen cities versus opening up to literally every single opportunity that exists. And the CHIPS Act, I think, has caused more people to think that U.S. manufacturing is more economically viable than perhaps it is, or maybe I should say economically competitive than it actually is. And that's going to result in a lot more companies locating facilities here, even though that might not be optimal in terms of margin and throughput and all of those other factors that these companies consider. Curious what you all think. I think that's a very well said um, statement because it, it, you've, you've kind of gelled what I was trying to get at. I think the CHIPS Act doesn't necessarily make us viable on a financial basis, but there's just so much noise out there about companies really trying. I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had about companies really looking to see if they could make it work, bring it back here and expand here and grow here. So on that on that front, I think there couldn't have been a better result. And hopefully, um, and hopefully you're right in terms of companies making more um, 
emotional or decisions than analytical decisions and putting their capacity here with, um, you know, without fully vetting the, you know, the, the, the cost stack. Um, I will tell you in other industries, that is exactly what happens. Uh, you know, you, you have a couple data points on where you think that the best location is. You, you analyze those particular locations and, you know, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've tried to get clients to take a step back and say, let's, let's start with the data set. Where, where do you want to be because of where your clients are, where your suppliers are, where your, where your customers are? What is, do you want to be out of, um, you know, out of the path of, of um, natural disasters? Is it near airports? Is it logistics, which, you know, which is really important to you and how does your product move logistically, right? Is it coming through FedEx? Are you doing it over the road? Is it coming through ports? And then a lot of that just gets thrown out and they're just like, no, this is where I want to be, right? And it's like, I keep trying to pull them back. Let's fill the data set first. Let's figure this out very analytically. And and sometimes it's just like, go, go, go. And, and it's it's more emotion than than data. And I 100% agree with you. And being able to navigate that where the client doesn't feel like you're slowing them down, but also you're trying to help them make a very educated and informed decision. You know, my, my the, 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 the carrot that I use sometimes in these situations is like, eventually this is going to go to your board. Even if we select this city, we need to show a path and a process which, which relies on data so you can get it approved, right? So even if we're doing it after the fact and we're filling in the pieces to get to the decision that you effectively want, let's go through the process and make sure you know we're, we're checking all the boxes so this can get ultimately approved in the end. So I think you're right, Tucker. I love that. Yeah, comment. a lot of inefficiency in how companies make decisions. <laughs> and oftentimes it seems like you're creating justifications for a location that's already been selected versus going through a thoughtful process around what location is actually the best. But switching gears, I want to talk briefly about what's going on with office space at large in the country. Um, you know, We now have updated data on the state of the office market. And in Los Angeles, we are now at a point, again, where we're the highest inventory of available space ever. And it just keeps getting worse. And obviously, that might not be true in you know every city in the U.S., but I, I would go out and say that it's probably true in the majority of cities. And if it's not the highest amount of available office space that we've ever seen, it's probably pretty darn near close. I had a call last week with a client, and we were talking about when's the bottom of the office market? Obviously, no one really knows, but I also think that there's this pretty serious misconception um, amongst brokers and other people in the real estate community that mistake an uptick in activity, meaning that that's going to improve the market fundamentals. When you think about the actual market, right, just because brokers have more projects that they're working on and maybe are busier than they were, you know, this time last year, that doesn't mean the market's actually improving, right? That just means that it's better than it was last year, but it could still be deteriorating. And what I, what I told this group is I said, look, our Los Angeles office is a lot busier than we were a year ago, but that doesn't mean that availability can't still be going up and vacancy can't still be going up because for every project we're working on, that doesn't mean that there's not 
a client of ours that's going from 10,000 to 5,000 feet or 100 to 80,000 feet or another company that's not renewing their lease that we're not involved with at all. So I think that there's this fundamental bias where brokers are like, gosh, I'm busier than I used to be. That must mean that the market's improving. And I worry that landlords in the office market are mistaking activity and deals being done with the market fundamentals actually materially changing. I don't think that they are. I personally think the office market's going to get worse for probably another year to three years, probably more like 18 months to two years for the rest of this shadow space inventory and all the sublease inventory to expire. I mean, for example, if you look at the total availability of all space in LA, 15% of it is sublease space. So imagine when those leases, their subleases expire, right? And those leases expire. That's going to increase the availability rate or the vacancy rate of space and the direct availability rate that landlords have on their books pretty meaningfully. So I'm curious what you all think uh, and how you're anticipating the next, you know, 12 to 24 months will shake out with the office market. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll go. It's a great question. The to me, we need to start talking about the office market differently. The office market, the way that the most real estate firms and investment firms track it, it just doesn't reflect reality. There's a large portion of inventory that may never get leased, and that will always be a drag on numbers. There's this kind of structured, we used to call it kind of a structured vacancy in Boston that was around 10% because there's a lot of space that's either, you know, you're, 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 you have a, a, a major lease that you've leased a new building and you're still in your old building. Um, so it's not vacant, but it's available. Or there's a building that's kind of sitting there that needs a massive amount of renovations to be really in inventory, but it's being carried in inventory. So we used to call and we're an old market. Boston's been around forever. So, um, you know, there was kind of that structured vacancy. I think that number needs to grow significantly. And a lot of the space will never get leased. And if it does, it, they're not by companies that would make a material impact on, on the value of the building or the statistics in the market. They're kind of these, um, you know, short-term deals, no credit, startups, stuff that's just, it, it, it's more of this um, transient inventory or something like that. But the... The core market, the market that is new construction, newly renovated buildings, uh, I'm seeing it here. It's a healthy market. Deals are getting done. There's there's availability, but it's not, you know, it's not 25% of the building. It's not 25% of the market. It's it's much more competitive. If the space is is built to a standard that's fairly new, so it's it's sublease space that's coming online, or it's a spec suite that's coming online. That's that's good. That's good space. There's the, in a good location with quality amenities and highly, you know, strong amenities in the location in the in the building. Those those spaces are seeing better activity. And I think when we start looking at the market differently and breaking it apart and saying like, let's stop, let's stop including all the shit. Excuse my French, but let's start looking at what, what people really want and where they want to go. And then, then we can have a real conversation on where the health is. And it's still, I still agree with you, it's 18 to 24 months away, but it's not as bad as you think because companies are still feeling good about their business, in, in my mind.
So Brian's view is that we really should be looking at two different vacancy and availability rates, right? One for our, all of the garbage space that's never going to be leased, another for the attractive space that is performing much better. I agree that the attractive space that's inspiring to employees that go to work there is performing a lot better. Um, I guess I would uh, agree with you, but also counter that I think we are, I think it is inaccurate to think that the entire category of office owners that have suboptimal space aren't going to make some kind of effort to save their buildings from functional obsolescence, right? I mean, these are hundreds of billions of dollars of buildings that are affected, right? That are now no longer desirable, may really struggle to find tenants, I think it's fair to say that many of those are not going to be converted to vertical farming or residential or something like that. And they have no other option but to figure out how to be competitive in today's office market, whether that be through a combination of price reductions, renovations, perks for people that work out of the building. I think that they will have to do something. And ultimately, the office market, just like any market, is governed by the functions of supply and demand. And when there's excessive supply, which we're certainly seeing now, and demand is much weaker than it was before, I think that that has to have a, a downward pressure on price across the most of all office space, right? Not the A-plus trophy asset that's sitting at 95% occupancy that you know has space that's leased as soon as it comes on the market, but the vast majority of buildings don't fall into that category. Oh, and, and Mike, I'm curious what both of you think. Yeah, so I'm kind of... a more of a believer like you, Tucker, that we've got years and years of supply to work through. And just as a uh, representative of what's going on here in the Pacific Northwest, let's take downtown Seattle, for example. You know, once the, you know, beacon of tech for arguably like most of the country with Amazon anchoring uh, Seattle, we have Apple, we have Facebook, we have Google, we have everybody. Um, Not to mention all the other smaller um, tech companies, which small relative to Amazon and Microsoft, but still very large. So we now in downtown Seattle, you know, we have a 23% vacancy rate. Okay. So that's literally space that's vacant, but that's not telling the whole story. Um, In terms of availability, which includes space that might be occupied that is otherwise available for sublease um, or tenants that have already announced that they're going to be moving out, it's 30%. So I tell people, like, we have these beautiful ferries that, you know, cross the Puget Sound and go out to the, you know, places where people live, like Bainbridge Island and the Olympic Peninsula. But imagine taking a ferry back into the city and looking at our gorgeous, you know, skyline. Uh, approximately one third of all the office buildings you see on that skyline as you head into the city are available. 23% of them, so a little bit more than a fifth, are vacant. And so we have a tremendous amount of supply. And what's going to happen is, and it's already happening, I'm not going to say who's doing this, but there are landlords that are now capitulated to say, you know what? I get it. There's a ton of supply. I got to fight with subleases that are fully furnished, that have you know limited terms. You know, Maybe it's five years versus 10. Um, and until that product is worked through, it's going to be really challenging, if not impossible, for, you, for me to leave space. And so we now have Class A, institutional quality buildings. And these are trophy buildings that you would recognize if you came into downtown Seattle. If if you are a listener from Seattle, you would know what they are, that are now doing deals consistent with that of which you might have seen 12 months ago a sublease trading for. And it's just a reality that I've said on an earlier pod, I don't remember which one it was, but rates always lag vacancy. 
Okay, so when vacancy ticks up, it takes landlords three, six, nine, 12 months sometimes to go, okay, I get it. Like there's no activity. I have to drop rates. And so you can look back any city in America, look at where vacancy rates have gone and you'll see that rates always lag six to 12 months. And we're finally starting to see that lag catch up, at least here in Seattle. I do deals all over the country and I'm seeing that elsewhere. And the best, smartest landlords are starting to realize either A, I've got to come up with a contingency plan, which is convert my building to multifamily, do vertical farming. All of that seems like a pipe dream for most. Um, Or I have to do a market deal now. And the market's had 12 months to work itself out. We kind of know that we're settling on uh, what is going to be a a hybrid workforce. And if I'm going to do any deals, this is where I have to be. And so I'm with Tucker. I think we've got 12, 24, 36 months of supply, um, maybe even more. Not to mention, guys, if you look back 10 years in Seattle, we have typically averaged, you know, call it 100,000 feet of positive net absorption. I'm talking that goes through the 2008 financial crisis, like, I mean, long time back. In the last trailing 12 months, we have 1.8 million square feet of negative absorption, meaning the Seattle market has been given back 1.8 million feet of net supply. We have a long way to go until we start seeing some positive absorption. So yet, while well, yes, there's deals in the market, and, and yes, people are reactivating downtown, and yes, Amazon's calling people back three days a week, we have a tremendous journey ahead of us, and that's one that's not going to happen overnight. Let's go to Mike and hear what's going on in Texas and also Mike's thoughts in general on what's happening with Office Space nationally. Look, it's interesting. I think each of you have expressed some extremely valid points, both in your respective markets and what I'm seeing nationally. Uh, Rates lagging um, on vacancy. You know, it's interesting. There's a handful of landlords here because you're right. No landlord wants to be the first one to drop rates, but there have been a handful of landlords that have tried to pounce on that opportunity, knowing that it's probably 24 months or longer and they're having some success right now. They can't necessarily drive additional velocity, but they can all of a sudden in a short list of four or five buildings, they could be the number one, number two option and they execute leases. So it's, it's successful for those that are willing to think outside of the box, even if it doesn't perform out as it traditionally would. Um, here in North Texas, I'm a lot more optimistic and bullish, mainly because of everything that we've seen in the South over the years, right? Just in, just in the past 10 years from 2010 to 2020, our population has grown by more than 22%. But during that same period, our economy grew close to 40 percent, and which is over one and a half times probably the the U.S. national average. And with the tremendous amount of corporations choosing to relocate out of, you know, the Northeast, the West Coast here to Texas, you know, for all the obvious reasons, uh, the location, the climate, the you know minimal natural disasters. Um, low cost of living, low tax structure, and the list goes on and on, um, it it creates a a groundswell of activity. So, you know, personally, I'd I'd probably think it's closer to 12 to 18 months, but it's definitely a problem. Uh, And a lot of the activity, to Tucker's point earlier that we're seeing, are a lot of the smaller to midsize, you know, the 5,000, 8,000 square foot transactions. That velocity has increased. A lot of these companies are 
uh, actually upgrading in space, going to that class A or, or the trophy building because they have a, a footprint that's 30% of what it used to be. I also want to take a moment for Mike to talk a little bit about what's going on in the industrial market in the South. Uh, Mike is one of the foremost experts on industrial real estate nationally uh, and has a very specific and unique view into regional companies in the South that might have you know, a few dozen or a hundred locations uh, located throughout the country in a lot of these cities where you might not see a Fortune 100 company locate. Right. So I'd love to hear more about um, what are these companies doing? What's the experience like in these smaller markets where they might have a population of, you know, 50,000 or 100,000 or quarter million people? What's happening in these smaller cities and what's happening at large with industrial real estate in Texas and in the greater south? Well, it goes without saying that industrial is the the darling of all the asset classes. We've seen it for a number of years and even pre-COVID. A lot of us uh, brokers in the, in the community were looking around, kind of scratching our head and wondering, how long is this ride going to last? I mean, because the trajectory has been continually positive. And then we go through COVID, and that only poured gasoline and diesel on an already hot burning fire, which has perpetuated a lot of the rental rate increases and um, as well as the limited supply, Right. Um, but one interesting thing that I've noticed in Texas, and this will speak a little bit to the larger and the smaller markets, Tucker, is you have Dallas-Fort Worth to the north, Houston to the south, and you have Austin in between, right? And we kind of call that the, not the Golden Triangle, but call it the Texas Triangle. You know, those are three major markets in the state that have truly done a phenomenal job at diversifying um their, their, their business base, right? Historically down in Houston, it used to all be oil and gas. Um, in Austin, in addition to kind of being come, being, uh, becoming the Silicon Valley of the South, right? Especially with Tesla, um, there's just a, 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 a tremendous amount of, of manufacturing as well as distribution that we haven't seen before, right? Even up in North Texas, you've seen predominantly a lot of uh, warehousing distribution, uh, 3PL type operations that continually expand, but um, it's been very interesting to see a lot of the manufacturing plastics companies um, uh, working with food equipment companies from a number of different uh, diversified industries that take advantage and, and set up a, a you know, set up a, a footprint here. That's great points, Mike. I'd love to do a, a deeper dive at some point into. Uh, the comparison between in-house and 3PL logistics and distribution, because a lot of our clients are looking at that as a, you know, as a way to move cost on the balance sheet from one kind of bucket to another, reduce costs, create flexibility, and they're both. It, depending upon who you talk to, they're uh, the decision is moving in the one direction or the other for the same reasons. So whenever that's happening, you know that there's a lot of um, you know, just there's just a lot of good opportunity to bring advice and guidance to our clients because you can. I've heard some create, uh, and maybe it's industry by industry, but I've heard some that have been able to create a um, a discussion to move it, move it in one direction for the same reasons as another company using the same reasons to move it in the other direction in house or three PL. So, um, you know, as you see all this growth, is it is it is it is it companies relocating there or is it is it 
the distribution channel is just exploding around the population growth, and you're seeing the industrial follow because there's just more people and they need more of everything. That's truly a, com- a combination of both, right? I read a statistic the other day that noted that since 2019, over 140 major companies have relocated to a large presence, of substantial presence in Texas. 40 per- 40% of those came from California alone. Um, I'm working with several clients right now uh, that are in the middle of uh, pulling out of Mexico and setting up operations, not necessarily in Texas. We're looking at the Carolinas and in the the Midwest as well. But there are um, labor concerns as well as uh, production quality concerns that they've experienced with their presence down in Mexico, which is triggering that. Um, obviously, a lot of the distribution um, continues to just uh, snowball. It's more of a snowball effect, right? Amazon's footprint continues and has continued to grow here in North Texas. So, Mike, great points. I have a question. In the office sector, landlords aren't dropping rents because the demand isn't necessarily there. But when you get into the deal, you can get real value. If It's either through concessions to bring the bring the average deal to value the deal down, or it's truly through face rents. Are you seeing the same thing in the industrial? It has to be as, you know, as you're going around the country, landlords are trying to get these huge numbers. It could be 20, 30, 40% over pro forma. Are you going in and just trying to grind or are they achieving these, these um, kind of out, uh, oversized um, rents in these markets you're hitting around the country? They have successfully achieved the oversized and overinflated rent rent creep that they truly have. These these lease rates are at a point where we've never seen before, and we pray that we're never going to see the year over year uh, percentage increase ever again. Right, um, but it, 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 it's fundamentally it's, it's supply and demand. Right, um, it, it getting back to your point on concessions, we can't we haven't been overly successful in driving the rates down. But uh, pressing on the tenant improvement allowance and maybe some free rent, uh, we, we have started seeing some, some rent concessions coming through. And instead of the 4 and 5% crazy annual escalators, you know, dropping back down closer to 3, 3.5. Three uh, but it's, it, it's, been, it's been challenging for a lot of distributors, right, especially 3PLs. Their, their contracts are price fixed and uh, they get... Uh, caught short on a renewal, they're, they're in a lot of trouble. Okay, there you have it. That concludes episode 19. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. Thanks to Mike for being our special guest this week. And we will be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks again. <laughs>